This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, California is transforming the gig economy. The state passed a law this week that requires Uber, Lyft, and other gig companies to treat their workers as employees rather than independent contractors. That means they get minimum wage and other job protections. Harold Meyerson will explain. Also, HUAC is history. The heyday of the House Un-American Activities Committee was the 1950s, but we're still concerned about government attacks on people and groups called un-American. David Marinus has been thinking about that history. We'll speak with him later in this hour. First up, the future of Afghanistan after an American pullout. Trump Watch starts right now. Well, we've been at war in Afghanistan for 17 years. It's our longest war, and most Americans think we should withdraw, including Donald Trump, who promised during the presidential campaign of 2016 to end the American war in Afghanistan, and whose representatives held talks with the Taliban over the last few months. But then last weekend, maybe you saw the news, Trump canceled a summit meeting where he planned to bring Taliban leaders to Camp David, exclamation point, to announce some kind of agreement he canceled after Taliban attacks in Afghanistan continued, and Trump declared those peace talks to be, quote, dead. But sooner or later, America will pull its troops out of Afghanistan. If Trump doesn't do it, his successor will. What will happen to Afghanistan then? For comment, we turn to Andrew Basevich. <clears throat> He's a retired colonel and Vietnam War veteran. He's also Professor Emeritus of International Relations and History at Boston University. Now he's president of the new Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He's a regular contributor to The Nation and the LA Times, the author of many books. His new one, The Age of Illusions, How America Squandered Its Cold War Victory, will be published in January. Andrew Basevich, welcome back. Oh, thanks very much for having me on. Well, you think the way we ended our war in Southeast Asia suggests how we will end our war in Afghanistan. What do you remember about the end of the Vietnam War? Well, uh, sometime around uh, the latter part of 1968, after the Tet Offensive, I think it became obvious to all, obvious to the military, I was then a serving officer, obvious to the political establishment, obvious to the country at large, that uh, it was unwinnable, that we were never going to persuade uh, North Vietnam to give up its efforts to unify the country. And therefore, after the election of Richard Nixon uh, as president, he took office in 1969, uh, he set out to extricate us from this unwinnable war, promising to do so, to, promising to deliver peace with honor. That was a lie. And what he really intended to do was to try to get us out without having to admit failure. Uh, and depending on how you look at it, I guess the peace agreement of 1973, January 1973, uh, 
enabled us to do that. We left, we forgot Vietnam, and we left the fate of Vietnam to be decided by the, the Vietnamese. And let's talk about the phrase, a decent interval. It's what Kissinger told the North Vietnamese in secret negotiations about what the United States wanted in South Vietnam. What did that mean, a decent interval? Well, once, once the U.S. began withdrawing U.S. forces, really Lyndon Johnson, I think, was, withdrew the first contingent. But one, and once he did, it was, it was uh, evident that that withdrawal would occur. And as we withdrew, we embarked upon a program then called Vietnamization. And the idea here was that as we left, we would improve the capabilities of the Army of the Republic of Vietnam, called Arvin, so that as we departed, they would have the capacity to take up the fight. And they would be able to maintain uh, the independence of South Vietnam. But few people, even at the time, had confidence that Arvin would be able to do that. And I think Kissinger is an example of those who did not expect that Arvin would be able to hold on. And therefore, from the point of view of American politics, all he wanted was to have some kind of a period of time elapse between our departure and the collapse then of South Vietnam. And that was the hoped-for decent interval turned out that the interval was you know, January 73 was when the peace deal uh, was solved, uh, springtime of 1975. That was it. Uh, North Vietnamese offensive, in the face of a North v Vietnamese offensive, Arvin collapsed and uh, the, the Republic of Vietnam was extinguished. That, that, that did not surprise Henry Kissinger. I don't think it surprised very many people at the time. Well, according to the Department of Defense uh, today, the total military expenditures that we have made in Afghanistan, this is from October 2001 until March 2019, was $760 billion. Uh, other people say it's more than that, but let's take $760 billion as the number. But uh, last November, General Joe Dunford, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, said the Taliban, quote, is not losing right now, close quote, despite all the work we have put into Afghanistan. What do you make of that statement, the Taliban is not losing right now? Well, there, there have been multiple uh, senior U.S. officers, to include the ones commanding in Afghanistan, who have openly described the war there as a stalemate. And I think they were uh, indulging in sort of a, a generous assessment. Uh, we're certainly not winning. Arguably, I would say, we're losing. That is to say that uh, incrementally over time, the Taliban are gaining control of a larger percentage of Afghan territory and, more importantly, a larger percentage of uh, the Afghan population. And that's the name of the game. Controlling the population is what will determine uh, the final outcome. So, Nobody wants to say out loud what is the reality, and that is we're losing. And when you think about the fact that we've been at this now for going on 18 years, uh, and, and you know it's not as if U.S. commanders have been uh, sticking to the same recipe the entire time. They have, on the contrary, uh, tried any number of methods, you know, uh, attrition warfare, uh, counterinsurgency, use special forces, uh, bomb them, use drones. 
variety of techniques, none of them has really had any significant effect on the course of the war. And, of course, throughout this 18-year period of time, we have been investing enormous sums of money and enormous energy in trying to build the capacity of the Afghan security forces, just as uh, back in the late 60s and early 70s we were trying to build, uh, build up the capacity of Arvin in Vietnam. And again, uh, there is no evidence that suggests that that effort is working. So the, the Afghan security services, I look this up, are officially have uh, 314,000 uh, members, at least on paper. The Taliban supposedly is less than a fifth of that. Uh, but the casualties for the Afghan military are, are bad. Former Secretary of Defense James Mattis let slip that what he called the Afghan lads, in quotation marks, uh, lost 1,000 men just in August and September. That's a year ago. The Afghan National Army, I read, loses nearly 3% of its force every month to casualties, uh, desertions, failure to re-enlist. 3% a month, that's, I guess, 36% over 12 months. That means they have to replace over a third of their army every year. Uh, how sustainable is that? How likely is that? Well, it, it, it's not. And again, I don't want to overdo the Vietnam comparisons because you, you know, yeah. that's, that's, it can't be overdone. But having just said that, this was part of our problem with Arvin. It wasn't that we didn't, we, pro we provided Arvin with lots of weapons, lots of ammunition, you know, fighter planes, uh, helicopters. Uh, there were any number of American advisors were trying to uh, train Arvin, uh, you know, impart the skills needed to be good soldiers. But in these kind of wars, you can impart skills, but you can't necessarily impart the will to fight. Uh, my sense is that in Afghanistan, the, the principal problem of the Afghan security forces is that they get recruited and they go through basic training and then they somehow disappear. Uh, you know, these people, they may not be willing, they're not as willing to die for their country as we would want them to be. Uh, and, and perhaps with good reason. Uh, there's, not, there's no particular reason that I can see uh, that one would have confidence in the uh, Afghan government that, of course, we installed uh, back at the end of 2001 that, that may, they may, soldiers may not necessarily see as their government. So that describes the fix. And again, you now we're doing this for 18 years. Now how many more years should we try? Uh, I, I think uh, I, I, am, I am the last person uh, to say that he's a supporter of Donald Trump. I'm not. But I think the president is right that in this case, uh, you have to recognize reality, and at some point you cut your losses. Uh, I'm not sure how many more American lives uh, this war is worth. And I say that recognizing that when we leave and when it, then it is left to the Afghan people to decide their, their future, it may not turn out to be a pretty uh, consequence. So what's the scenario here for, for, for the Americans? Assuming Trump changes his mind about negotiating with the Taliban, he often does change his mind, so assuming he restarts these negotiations in, in Qatar, uh, and if this follows something like the Vietnam model, as you've suggested, it probably will, 
how will the American war in Afghanistan end? Will Trump be talking about, in private, a decent interval? Will his successor actually claim mission accomplished? Well, I don't know that his successor will. But if they go back, if, if this deal, which you know, the Trump has now declared is dead, I think. Yes. I, don't, I suspect it's not dead. Right. I suspect that next week or the week after, your point, he constantly reverses course. Uh, he'll, he'll discover that it's not dead after all. And he has a strong incentive to wrap this war up. He has not had any significant foreign policy successes that I can see. He's running for re-election. It would be very much to his benefit if he could say, hey, look, I promised to win the war in Afghanistan. I did. Mission accomplished. Uh, vote for me. And so I'm guessing that he's going to want to revive this process. And my further guess, and it's only a guess, would be that the, the ultimate peace deal will closely resemble the one that fell apart uh, just a week or so ago, uh, that uh, we'll have a phased pullout. Uh, basically, the Afghan government will be handed a, a take-it-or-leave-it note, uh, and the Taliban will bide its time until the Americans are gone, and then actions will occur to determine what's going to be the future of Afghanistan. Well, one of the biggest issues in Afghanistan for many Americans is really a big difference with Vietnam in 1973 to 75, and that's what will happen to women and women's education if the Taliban return to power. Last time the Taliban ruled Afghanistan, girls were not allowed to go to school, women were not allowed to work outside the home. The deal the Trump people seem to have been making with the Taliban did not include anything about women's rights. They said... They were going to leave that to negotiations between the Afghan government and the Taliban. Right. What do you think will happen to girls' education in Afghanistan after the United States pulls out? You know, honestly, I wouldn't even speculate. Uh, and, and I'm not, I don't mean to be punting here, but you, uh, your, uh, your description of the fate of Afghan women and, and girls when the Taliban was last in power is certainly accurate. Okay, we've now... 20 years later, uh, and it is at least possible to speculate, and I'm only speculating, right. uh, that the Taliban leaders have learned something over the course of this 20 years in exile, and therefore they may take a somewhat different approach if they, if they return to power. I don't mean to imply that somehow they will be you know, enthusiastic supporters of gender equality, <laughs> but... I don't think we need necessarily to take the worst-case assumption, but the worst case could occur. Uh, and, and that, too, then, will be a stain, really, on the United States. We promised to deliver certain things. We failed to deliver those things. And I, all I would say is that, well, how much longer should we stay? And, and to anyone who says, well, we have an obligation to those women and those girls, and I think that's an argument you can make, well, are you willing to send your 19-year-old son uh, to persist in this war uh, that we have uh, waged for so long, so unsuccessfully, send your kid with an expectation that somehow if we hang in there another five years that we're going to get a different result? My judgment would be that we're not going to get a different result, that we can stay there until the cows come home, and we are not going to be able to impose our will on Afghanistan. We, we tried that, 
We have failed. We probably shouldn't have tried it in the first place. It was arrogant on our part to think that uh, we had the capacity uh, to remake uh, Afghanistan and somehow to impart uh, our value system. Well, we tried, we failed, and it seems to me that we, we have to confront that failure. Uh, one more thing. After the fall of Saigon, uh, more than a million South Vietnamese fled uh, communist rule, especially those who had worked for the Americans, who would then be targeted. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 1.3 million Vietnamese were eventually admitted to the United States and settled as refugees after the American yeah. War formally concluded, assuming... Let's just look at one scenario. The Kabul government falls at some point, two or four or six years from now. Do you think the United States will welcome 1.3 million Afghan refugees? You're, you're pulling my leg, right? <laughs> just, just thought no, I'd... No, you, no it's, a, it's, a, it's a great question. Obviously, the Trump administration could care less about Afghan refugees. But I'm not sure that, that a, a successor to Trump, you know... Given the, the mood of our country, which is not particularly sympathetic uh, to, uh, uh, to people who aren't like us, uh, I would be surprised if there was, I, I, would, I, would, ur I would hope that there would be, uh, but I would be surprised if, in fact, we welcomed a flood of Afghan refugees to our country, if indeed, uh, you know, if things go south and the Taliban end up uh, prevailing there. One, one last thing. I have a question about the Quincy Institute, the new think tank that you head. It's funded by an extremely unlikely pair of billionaires, George Soros and Charles Koch. In everything else, they are fundamentally opposed, but they yeah. both support your work. How did you do this? Well, I, I, you know, it's not that I did it personally, but let, let me say a couple things. First of all, it is true that Koch, a right-winger, Soros, a progressive, both support uh, the, the Quincy Institute. So do other people. So it's not, a, it's not as if that those are the only two funders of our, of our organization. But you put your finger on it. They disagree with one another on a, on a host of issues, but they both believe that our militarized approach to foreign policy has had terribly negative consequences for, the, for our country. So they support a more restrained approach to foreign policy, Less, less use of the military, more emphasis on engagement through diplomacy, not isolationism. That's not what the Quincy Institute stands for, but engagement that will promote peace as our, as our goal. That's a, that's a goal that almost nobody ever talks about anymore. Uh, we think that it's, it's the proper goal of policy, and so we're hoping to bring about greater recognition in, in, in political circles. Uh, that, uh, that, 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 that militarization hasn't worked, and we need to find an alternative. Andrew Basevich, he's president of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. His article, Trump's Afghanistan Peace Will Be Vietnam All Over Again, is from Tom Dispatch. It appears at the L.A. Times and The Nation. Thank you, Mr. Basevich. Thank you. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK with Trump Watch and the Trump Watch podcast. Next up, big news for Uber and Lyft drivers in California. That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues.
It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org, and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Later in this hour, who is un-American? David Marinus will comment. But first, California legislators approved a landmark bill on Tuesday that requires companies like Uber and Lyft to treat people who are now contract workers as employees, giving them minimum wage protection and other benefits. For comment, we turn, of course, to Harold Meyerson. He's editor-at-large of the American Prospect and a regular contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, how big is this? Uh, it's big. Uh, it's big because uh, California is much the biggest state, and when California uh, says that Uber and Lyft drivers and other misclassified workers are misclassified and they have to be uh, treated as employees, if they actually are employees, which in effect they are, uh, that has, uh, A, just because of the sheer size of California, that has all kinds of implications. B, uh, because many states look to California, it has all kinds of implications. And C, it goes well beyond Uber and, you know, uh, Uber and Lyft drivers. There are easily a million and probably more misclassified workers in California who really work for a company, but the company, uh, is, uh, not obliged to, uh, uh, pay the minimum wage or overtime pay or anything like that but by virtue of not labeling them as independent contractors uh, when they're actually employees. So th- this this could have a major effect on the gig economy and all, all other lots of other parts of the California economy as well. Well, let's just review here for a minute. Why is it good for people to be employees rather than independent contractors? Isn't independence a great American thing? Sometimes it is, and sometimes it isn't. But what comes with it in this case is non-coverage from some basic laws, uh, the law that guarantees you a minimum wage, a law that guarantees you overtime pay when you work overtime. Uh, in the case of uh, Uber, uh, drivers pretty much have to pay the expenses for their car, uh, but, uh, and, and, you know, Uber, Uber doesn't. The drivers have to give a share of uh, their income, which isn't usually all that much, uh, to Uber. Uh, so you get you get uh, certain legal guarantees that independent contractors don't. Now you gain uh, if if this is you know the the, the plus side is uh, you know you set your own hours. Uh, but even even there, uh, if uh, you're you know if you're cruising around waiting uh, for someone to, you know, ask for a ride on Uber, you don't get paid for that. You only get paid for actually when that person is is in your car. So uh, there are all kinds of things which are uh, disadvantages to uh, th- those kinds of workers in the gig economy, which this, uh, this law would address. And let's include on that list uh, Medicare and Social Security participation, which when you're young you don't think about, but when you get old like me is a very important thing. Indeed it is. So there are all kinds of exclusions which come from being excluded from the category of employee. Now, under this measure, which, assuming that the governor, Gavin Newsom, signs it, which we expect him to do, it will go into effect January 1st. It says workers must be designated as employees instead of contractors if the company exerts control over how they perform their tasks 
or if their work is part of a company's regular business. So who else is covered? We've been talking here about Uber and Lyft, but you said there's probably more than a million people. Who else is, is subject to this? Well, uh, truckers, for instance. Truckers at the port work for uh, trucking companies, and there have been efforts uh, to unionize them forever, but they have been thwarted by the fact that the uh, trucking companies say, oh, you're an independent contractor. Uh, this is a fight that's been going on since around the time I arrived at the L.A. Weekly in 1989. Yes. Uh, they would be covered by it, all kinds of workers and services uh, in uh, nail salons and, and, and Lord knows what else. Generally, as you approach lower-income jobs, uh, the... Uh, uh, disproportionately, though by no means entirely, those are the workers who get misclassified. Now, there are obviously a whole group of workers who are independent contractors who aren't necessarily at the bottom of the totem pole. Uh, certainly a lot of writers uh, who are freelancers, uh, you know, some of, the, some of them, I'm sure, uh, you know, have chosen a, a field which is not necessarily very remunerative, uh, but uh, the the new law says you're a freelancer unless you write 35 times a year for a certain publication. Uh, so, you know, it, it, it covers a broad spectrum of folks, and a lot of what was going on in Sacramento in the weeks leading up to the passage of the bill was the legislature sort of saying, okay, who is included and who is not included in the, the law that we're writing. And what did it take to get this through the legislature? Who gets the credit? I'm sure that Uber and Lyft spent millions on lobbying in Sacramento to block this. Yes, they did. And uh, they, they've also threatened to spend millions more on a ballot measure to undo it. Uh, this is mainly the labor movement. This was uh, the labor movement saying, uh, look, you are uh, screwing a lot of workers, and it's uh, sort of our core mission, as it were. Uh, to keep that from happening. Uh, it's the labor movement that usually is the force, for instance, behind uh, the legislature raising the minimum wage. And in this case, they were the force behind saying, hey, all of these people are included under minimum wage, too, uh, and you can't escape that obligation by mislabeling them as independent contractors. So the labor movement gets most of the credit for getting this through the legislature. I would say there's one person who gets credit, who usually doesn't get enough credit for this sort of thing, and that's Pete Wilson, the governor who supported Prop 187. Pete Wilson, wouldn't you say, laid the groundwork for this victory in the legislature? Uh, how, why don't you, that, that's your theory. So you go through your theory, and I'll explain my Arnold Schwarzenegger theory. <laughs> my theory is that theory. Pete Wilson, by endorsing the bill that would have denied all kinds of social and public uh, benefits to undocumented immigrants transformed the Republican Party into an all-white party and alienated the Latino population, including the Latino voting population of California, opening the door to democratic control of the state, the state legislature, and the legislative agenda. That's my theory. What's yours? Well, it's, it's, it's not a bad theory. I mean, California is obviously hugely transformed since 1994 when Prop 187 uh, was on the ballot, I would say uh, the uh, uh, severe recession of the early 90s, which caused a lot of workers in the uh, downsizing aerospace industry, which was also suffering from the end of the Cold War, 
uh, moved a lot of people who normally voted Republican out of the state because those jobs were gone. And the efforts of the labor movement, in particular the late Miguel Contreras in Los Angeles, to politicize uh, the anger coming out of Prop 187 uh, in the Latino communities of California uh, hastened uh, this shift. Also, ironically, so did term limits because uh, for years, term limits meant there was a continual turnover of state legislative seats, and that definitely worked to the Democrats' advantage uh, during this transitional period. Now, the Schwarzenegger theory is that the law that uh, was just passed in the legislature conforms uh, state law to a remarkable Supreme Court decision, the Dynamex decision, which was came down last year, uh, and which basically said, no, you can't, you know, you, you can't misclassify employees and it put it up to the legislature to decide who was in and who was out of that category. That was an opinion uh, supported by the Republican appointees of, of, of Arnold Schwarzenegger to the state Supreme Court and was written by his appointee as the uh, court's chief justice. So in that sense, Arnold may have been literally the last moderate Republican on earth, and uh, his justice appointments uh, are the ones who laid the groundwork for uh, this bill. This is Chief Justice Ronald George, I believe. Let's no, 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 no. Not no, Ronnie no, no, George. No, that was, no that, uh, Ronald George goes back to a George Dukmajan appointment. Ah, uh, I'm out of no, step this here. Is, this is, this is uh, an Asian-American woman with a hyphenated name, which I don't uh, profess to remember right. So All right, I'm, I'm, I'm living in the past here. You sure so, are. So... Um, this is going to cost Uber and Lyft and everybody else who employs contract workers a, a lot of money. Uh, for the Uber and Lyft drivers who are listening, how much more are they going to make as a result of this, aside from the benefits of, of uh, Social Security and Medicare? Well, it, it depends because, you know, there's, I don't know that there's a typical Uber and Lyft driver. I mean, yeah. it depends how many hours they drive. Uh, where they're driving, etc. But they'll certainly make overtime if they go over, you know, 40 hours a week, which uh, they don't make now. And they'll get paid for the time they're spending cruising around without uh, without a fare in the car, which they don't make now. And if uh, what they make averages out to less than uh, the state minimum wage, they'll make more as a result of that. And you said one of the significant parts of this bill is that it may influence other states. What can you tell us about other states? What other states might take this up? Well, New York is now looking at this. Uh, you know, it was California and New York, which were the first states to raise the state minimum wage gradually to $15 an hour. Uh, these are the two largest blue states, as it were, in the country. Uh, they are increasingly, uh, they they move somewhat together. It's, it's almost kind of... Uh, uh, a game of, uh, you know, can you top this? Uh, and uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see New York and other Democratic states, uh, maybe Illinois, uh, uh, among among other large Democratic states, to move in this direction, and certainly some of the states in New England. So we shall see. And there are other states which have passed laws explicitly defining Uber and Lyft drivers as independent contractors and requiring or prohibiting them from being uh, subject to union rights or collective bargaining or minimum wage. About half the states of the nation have passed those laws. Which states are those? Those are states governed by Republicans who... Uh, 
really uh, are fearful of any increase in union membership, which tends to aid Democrats come election time. That's their main concern. Uh, but also want to, you know, curry favor with business and view worker power generally as anathema, uh, part of uh, the anti-worker uh, animus that it sort of begins in the South. The South is the, are the states that had right-to-work laws. The, the, the five states that have no state minimum wage laws are Mississippi, Alabama, uh, I think Louisiana, it's all, all southern states. All of our favorite the states. Legacy, the legacy of slavery. Yes. I mean, you know, there's yes. the, the continual opposition, which is, it, which is not only profoundly racist, but really opposition to paid labor. Uh, yeah. So that, that continues. But the Republican Party has gotten so all-white and wacko right-winged nationally that you, you now see some of the laws that previously were confined to places like Mississippi and Alabama uh, being enacted by Republican governors and uh, when they were there in places like uh, Alab- like uh, Wisconsin and Michigan. Of course, yeah. happily, those Republican governors uh, uh, are gone, and they're Democratic governors now in those states. Now, we've been saying here that this is the, a law that affects, above all, Uber, but Uber yesterday announced that it is not subject to California's law. What was their reasoning here? Well, the, the reasoning, which <laughs> we are uh, chuckling, mind-boggling, uh, is that their core. They said their core business isn't really the driving; it's just coming up with the app. Of course, <laughs> if you look at the source of Uber's income, that is a very, very, very difficult position to sustain. Uh, but uh, the uh, general counsel of Uber, who is Tony West, who also coincidentally happens to be. Kamala Harris's uh, brother-in-law, you know, said that, therefore, they're not going to uh, reclassify these employees come uh, January 1 when the uh, uh, wage takes effect, and obviously this will lead to major and immediate court action. And it is just kind of a stunning operation, since I think most people think of Uber as a company uh, that mainly provides uh, rides in cars, uh, and not simply a tech company that has uh, an app. We have a lot of smiling and nodding in master control here at KPFK. But let me just quote uh, the the uh, Uber position. Uh, it's worth quoting, I think. Drivers are not a core part of Uber's business. Their job is not providing rides, but, quote, serving as a technology platform for several different kinds of digital marketplaces, close quote. They'll also deliver food, for example. Uh, Uber Eats. So this will end up in court, and I'm sure that there are some courts that will that would in the United States, some some state courts that would agree with Uber on this, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. And again, you have the split, which grows wider every day, between Republican-controlled states and therefore Republican-controlled courts and Democratic-controlled states. Now, since uh, the whole genesis, as I said, <coughs> of this legislation is a decision of the California Supreme Court. I don't think this is going to go anywhere uh, in California courts. Uh, if they uh, want to take it to a federal court, uh, Lord only knows. Well, I have to say, I do not understand the Uber business model. Last year, they lost almost $2 billion. The year before last, they lost more than $2 billion. So, Apparently, profit is not something that matters to Uber's investors. Uber went public in May with the help of Morgan Stanley. 
uh, and set a record. It was the stock market debut that lost more in dollar terms than any other American IPO since 1975. They did raise $8 billion in their IPO. So if they continue to lose $2 billion a year, they'll go broke in, let's do the math here, four years. Uh how uh, is it? I mean, I always thought capitalism was about making a profit, but I'm missing something here. What is it? You would think. Well, uh, obviously, they have persuaded someone that uh, their model is sort of like early Amazon under Jeff Bezos, where uh, he said, we, we don't care about the profits, we're just going to keep investing and expanding, and one day we will be earth shaking. And, and, you know, Uber has put a lot of, a lot of that, what such money as they have. Into public uh, public relations, saying you know we are the future, uh, and we we provide uh, you know a way to get around that enables people uh, not to buy cars, although they still have congested Manhattan to the point that they're a huge problem there and other cities where there are a lot of uh, a, a lot of Ubers r- driving around. Uh, but um, you know, I mean, to a certain degree, yes, they're a little like those Warner Brothers cartoon characters, Wiley e. Coyote, who was <laughs> run off the edge of the cliff. <laughs> and uh, he's still suspended in air until he looks down. Uh, and uh, uh, apparently Uber hasn't quite looked down yet, but uh, when they do, Lord knows what's going to happen. Well, their stock has gone down something like 20% since the IPO, which was just a couple of months ago. So maybe maybe they're beginning their wily Coyote uh, moment here. <laughs> Descent, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, for the rest of us, what, what happens now? How is this bill going to be enforced? Do the Uber and Lyft drivers have to file to be covered by this? No, they are they are simply covered by this. Uh, and if uh, it's January one and uh, on the morning of January two, Uber is still not treating them as employees, then cities can sue them, uh, and I presume drivers can sue them as well. Under the terms of the legislation, I know cities can sue them, sue them and obviously drivers can sue them. Yeah, it's, uh, the cities the cities are given the responsibility of enforcing the law by suing the companies that don't comply. And we're talking here about Uber and Lyft, but of course, as you said, there are dozens, hundreds, hundreds of others that have misclassified uh, workers as independent uh, contractors. Um, and are we sure that G- Governor Gavin Newsom is going to sign this bill? The stock went up a little bit yesterday because he said he was committed to continuing negotiations with Uber and Lyft. What was that about? Well, he said he said two things. One is that yes, he'll sign the bill, and two is that he is committed to continuing negotiations. Uh, that doesn't mean. Uh, I mean, I I, I, he, I I take from that that he env- envisions some process. After the bill is signed, what the hell that process is, uh, I don't have any idea, and I'd be surprised if uh, if, if very many people did. Uh, it is the case that Uber and Lyft have been very close to certain long-established members of of the Democratic Party and have employed uh, prominent members coming out of the Obama administration. Uh, have uh, Senator Barbara Boxer in their corner. Uh, so the world from which Gavin Newsom emerges certainly has uh, collegial uh, and sometimes significant financial ties to Uber and Lyft. Uh, but the political world he's in uh, is saying, look, they they got to play square or they don't play. And in the minute we have left, just remind us which of the Democratic presidential candidates stand where on the question of uh, Uber and Lyft. 
Well, all of the major candidates except Joe Biden have specifically endorsed the legislation. Uh, in Biden's case, A, he doesn't get into the specifics of hardly anything, yes. and B, uh, there are many members of the administration where he was vice president who were on uh, Uber or Lyft payrolls or, or very friendly therewith. So, uh, and, you know, the, the real split is evident in, in, in Kamala Harris, who, uh, being political, uh, had understanding where the Democrats are at this year, endorsed the legislation, even though uh, her, Tony West, the general counsel of Uber, who was the one who issued the bizarre statement yesterday that they're not really a ride company, uh, they're just an app company, uh, that, that he's married to her sister, who is her campaign uh, chairman. So, uh, go figure. <laughs> go figure. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Thank you, John. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, and this is Trump Watch. Next up, who is un-American? That's in a minute on KPFK when our program continues. Same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK. Coming up at four tonight on KPFK, rising up with Sonali. But first, UAC is history. The heyday of the House Un-American Activities Committee, of course, was the 1950s, but we're still concerned about government attacks on people and groups called un-American. And David Marinus has been thinking about that history. His father was called before HUAC in 1952 and then blacklisted from his job as a newspaper editor. David is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and associate editor at the Washington Post. He's also a distinguished visiting professor at Vanderbilt, and he's written 12 books, including best-selling biographies of Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. His new book is A Good American Family, The Red Scare and My Father. David Marinus, welcome to the program. Thank you, John. Great to be with you. So when your father was subpoenaed by HUAC in 1952, who was he, and how old were you? My father was 34 years old. He was the chief rewrite man at the Detroit Times in Detroit, Michigan. He had come out to Michigan from his growing up in Coney Island in Brooklyn, New York, and went to the University of Michigan, and then went to Detroit to be a newspaper man, interrupted by World War II. But in 1952, we were living in Detroit. I was not yet conscious of my life. I was two, not quite three. I have no memories of that moment. And who was the, the rat, the stoolie, the fink, who named your father? Well, she was called, the, uh, among other things, the Grandmother Spy. Her name was Berenice Toby Baldwin. She was 49 years old and a grandmother, um, a working-class woman from Detroit who had been recruited by the FBI nine years earlier uh, during the war um, to become an informant uh, for the FBI in the Michigan Communist Party. She remained uh, there until 1952 when the House on american Activities Committee came to Detroit She came in from the cold at those hearings. She had been the secretary of the Michigan Communist Party, had hundreds of names of people who had been in the party over the course of her time there, and she named all the names. My father was one of those. 
And when and how did you find out that your father had been a member of the Communist Party? You know, it was a shadow in our uh, in my in our lives. Um, later, I I knew that that he'd been a member of the party. I knew that he'd been fired from jobs, but it was not something that he talked about. Um, he he sort of survived that period and moved on, became a very successful progressive newspaper editor uh, in Madison, Wisconsin. And by the time I became politically conscious, it was something sort of in our past, a shadow of the family. And so I knew that, it, that, that this had happened, but I didn't know any of the particulars. And, you know, I'd spent my adult career writing biographies of people who were strangers to me when I started and became very familiar to me. And throughout that process, I'd often say to people, when they'd ask, well, why did Barack Obama or Bill Clinton tell this particular story about his family that wasn't necessarily the right one? And I'd say, you know, we all hear the mythology from our parents and grandparents of our family story, but very rarely do we have a biographer coming behind us to find out what really happened. And I started thinking, well, I hadn't even done that with my own family, and that's what got me started on this project. In doing research on your father's story, you went to the National Archives and looked up the HUAC files on him. What did you find? That was probably the most emotional moment of my research, and it came very early on. The hearings in Detroit in March and February of 1952, there were transcripts of those hearings. They were public record. And in those hearings, you could see in the transcript that my father said he had a statement he'd like to read about what he felt it meant to be an American. And the chairman of the committee, a Georgia Southern, a Southerner from Georgia, refused to let him read the statement. So I knew that he wanted to give a statement, and all of those decades later, in 2015, I went to the National Archives. There was a a large uh, file on those hearings in Detroit and one folder that said Elliot Marinus, and when I opened it, the first thing I saw was the statement that they would not let my father read. Wow. And what did it say? It was a very profound defense of not only his definition of what it meant to be an American, but of freedom of speech and of freedom of the press. And he was making the argument that it was the committee that was un-American, and that in the United States there was never a, a movement to acquiesce to, to decline our rights for freedom of speech and freedom of the press. And it was a very strong, powerful statement that, that uh, I found both moving on a personal level and very strong on a, on a larger universal level. You said the committee chairman who refused to let him read his statement was a Southerner from Georgia. His name was John Stevens Wood. You also studied his life, and you found out he wasn't just a Southerner from Georgia. No, one of the one of the things I wanted to do in this book was to look at my father's experience through the the lens of everyone who was in that room during that most traumatic period of his life. The chairman of the committee, John Stevens Wood, had once been a member of the Klan as a young man. Stunningly, I found that he had driven the car that carried the lynched body of of Leo Frank, uh, a Jewish industrialist who'd been lynched by a mob in 1915 uh, in Marietta, Georgia. Um, the, the mastermind of that lynching was essentially John Stevens Wood's mentor, 
and Woods drove the car that carried the lynched body. Uh, after that, uh, as a Southern racist, he, he voted for every possible racist uh, piece of legislation and against any civil rights legislation. And he's the person who called my father, who had been very strong on civil rights and the commander of an all-black unit during World War II, called my father un-American. So the question is, what does it mean to be an American, and who decides who's American and who's un-American? And your father's attorney has a very interesting story. Tell us about him. Yeah, my father's attorney was an African-American lawyer from Detroit named George Crockett, who later went on to become a congressman from Detroit. And he was of the left, but not a member of the Communist Party. But he felt very deeply um, that the civil liberties that should be afforded to someone for their political purposes uh, were very deeply connected to the civil liberties that were denied to African Americans. And so he thought it was all part of the same struggle to give to what might be called the other, whether it was a communist or a black or, or a Eastern European immigrant or a Native American. He believed deeply that all those civil liberties were closely connected. And so he was strong in the defense of my father, of people who were accused of being un-American for being communists, and of, of course, of uh, the rights of, of black people in America. And there was another file you found. Military intelligence also interviewed people about your father uh, when the war began, including someone named Morton Mintz. That was a name that was familiar to you. Yeah, it was. It was, uh, you know, uh, they investigated my father during World War II when he was seeking to become an officer, which he eventually became. But the military intelligence went back to the University of Michigan and interviewed um, professors, fellow students, landlords, everybody they could find about my father. And one of those they interviewed was the student who had, re who had succeeded my father as the editorial editor of the college newspaper, the Michigan Daily. His name was Morton Mintz. And when I saw that piece of paper in the, in the FBI files, it really floored me because I had worked with Morton Mintz at the Washington Post. I had been his editor briefly um, in the investigative staff, and I admired him greatly for his um, sort of fearlessness and maverick ways in taking on uh, the powers that be, uh, whether they were the drug industry or the newspaper itself. And it sort of surprised me when I saw that he told the uh, military investigators that my father should not be trusted. He should not. He didn't want him to be a, uh, an officer in the American military. And it was a very strong denunciation of my dad. And so, uh, Morton Mintz was 95 years old when I read that, and he was still alive. He was still alive, and so you went to talk to him. What did he say? You know, I found Morton Mintz uh, in Washington, and he told me that he didn't have a strong memory of it, but that it was the biggest shame of his life. And he doesn't know quite why he did it, except for the strong uh, sort of sentiments of that time during the war and the fervor against uh, the Communist Party. So I felt badly that he said that. He was 95. I didn't want him to to uh, you know, go to his grave with this remorse because I told him that my father was a very forgiving person. Those were difficult times, and uh, you know, I didn't want him to feel that remorse about it. So we had a long discussion, but it was a really difficult moment for him and for me.
And when your father was before the committee and the committee asked him the famous question, are you now or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party, your father pled the fifth. Uh, explain what that meant and how it worked. Well, pleading the fifth meant that you did not have to testify against yourself. The committee um, interpreted anyone who took the fifth to mean that they were guilty and that the, you know that was simply an expression of guilt. Uh, my father took the Fifth Amendment because he didn't want to have to answer questions about anyone else. He was not going to testify against any of the people that were also in the Communist Party. He had already been fired from his job. They couldn't do anything more to him um, in terms of that, but he was not going to, to do the bidding of this committee, which really only wanted people to confess and be contrite and ask for uh, forgiveness. And my father was not about to do any of that. You know, decades later, young people like I used to be went back over this history of people who pled the fifth, and we asked why the Communist Party members didn't explain themselves to the public when they had the chance. Why didn't they testify something like, I joined the Communist Party because I wanted to support workers organizing the CIO, because I wanted to work with black people who were fighting for equality, and because I wanted to join the fight against fascism in Spain and in Europe. Wouldn't that have been a lot better than answering the question, I refuse to answer on the grounds that it might incriminate me? That's a very uh, interesting argument, and of course, those are the reasons that most of them joined the Communist Party, and they're, they're very noble, idealistic reasons. What happened was, in the late 1940s, many people did say, make those arguments, including the Hollywood Ten, and they, they sort of stood behind the, their First Amendment freedom of speech rights. That led them to, to prison. They were imprisoned because the First Amendment did not protect them. And there's, there's one more thing. The rules of the committee were that if you answered one question, you had to answer all the questions. Exactly. That's, that's the point, and that's what people like my father would not do, because that meant they would have to answer questions about other people and become informants, essentially, for this committee. Last question. I want to ask about the New York Times review of your book. Uh, the reviewer, Kevin Baker, concluded, for all of Marinus's research... A mystery remains at the heart of a good American family. Just what were his parents, especially his father, doing in the Communist Party in the first place? The book gives us little insight into how this great American spirit ended up stuffing himself into a closet of dreary Russian dogma, close quote. The book review did print several, several rebuttals uh, in their letters column, Nothing From You. I wonder if you have any comment. Well, of course I do. I mean, you know, as the author, you know, I, I tend not to respond to reviews. I let them stand on their own. In this case, it was an overwhelmingly positive review with a conclusion at the end or an ending that I disagreed with. I think it was readily apparent why my father was attracted to the Communist Party, why my parents were. It had to do with uh, the, the Great Depression and a belief that Capitalism had failed with the r rampant racism in the United States and with the rise of fascism and Nazism in Europe. And I think all of those factors, along with the labor movement, the strong labor movement in Michigan, where 
where they were uh, college students, all of those factors led them toward that idealistic, if somewhat naive, uh, place. One last thing. Your father was fired from his job and uh, blacklisted. Where did he end up? He was fired from the Detroit Times as soon as the informant named his name. For five years, our family bounced around to New York and Cleveland and back to Detroit and Ann Arbor and a small town in Michigan, I mean in Iowa, a small town in Iowa. But he finally, in 1957, after five years in the wilderness, got hired by the Capital Times in Madison, Wisconsin. Um, It was a progressive newspaper that had made its name Fighting Joe McCarthy, the symbol of that Red Scare era. McCarthy had just died when we got to Madison, and in many ways that job in that city saved our family. And where are you right now? I'm in Madison, Wisconsin, um, where I went to high school and, and university, and my wife and I are both from here, and we have a summer house here. David Marinus, his new book is A Good American Family, The Red Scare and My Father. David, thanks for this book, and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you so much, John. It was great talking with you. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank my other guests. Andrew Basevich talked about Vietnam and Afghanistan. Harold Meyerson commented on the new California law transforming the lives of a million gig workers in the state, starting with Uber and Lyft. Thanks to our engineer, Gary Baca. Thanks to our producer, Renee Reynolds. Thanks, as always, to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Coming up at 4 tonight on KPFK, Rising Up with Sonali. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on this same station. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Thanks for listening.